We are finishing up our sermon series in James. So we're going to be looking at the last 13 or so verses, starting in verse 7 of chapter 5. And I want to remind us a little bit of what James is trying to do. So going back, and we've kind of tried to be um, mindful of this throughout the series, is that James, more than any other book in the Bible, is telling you what to do. So those statements of like, do this, do this, do this, those are what we refer to as imperative statements, like things that you should do. And usually in Scripture, there's actually, especially in the New Testament letters, there's a balance more towards you are this, you are this, you are this. And those are called like indicatives. And so kind of reminding us of our identity, who we are in Christ. And so James is really concerned with what we are doing. And he's concerned about this for a couple of reasons. One, he sees kind of this divergence between those indicatives of who you are to the imperatives of what you're doing. And so in the church, as he's kind of looking out at the early church as a pastor, he just has a heart that he wants to see those things aligned. And so he's assuming a lot of those indicative statements. He's assuming that people know those things. And so now he's just very practically saying, like, when you are in Christ, when you trust him, here's what your life looks like. And so it's a very practical letter. It's something that you can kind of put into play fairly well, it's not easy, but it's simple, right? It's hard to do, but not hard to understand. And so at the end of this letter, he's kind of starting to bring everything to a conclusion, and he's recycling a lot of the themes that we've already heard. But he's putting a slightly different twist on it to kind of bring it all home. And so that's what we're going to dig into today. Let me go ahead and read it as we start. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man of a, with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. 
And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Please pray with me. Father, you are so good. You remind us of what's important. You don't live in abstractions, but you work through ordinary things of our lives. And so, God, I ask that you would help us to take our eyes off of what we think is important, off of what we think matters in this world, and to see from your word the inspiration of the Spirit what matters to you. Lord, help us value this above everything else. Help us to let go of what this world says is important and to embrace the blessing that you have for us as we walk as your people. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you guys ever had a moment where you've kind of realized that you may have made a huge mistake and have wasted a lot of your time? That maybe you were focused on the wrong thing and then some kind of event shows you that you miscalculated what you thought was important, what you thought was worth working for, actually wasn't. This has happened to me a couple times. One of the times was right before we had our first daughter. So my life was kind of building up in kind of like typical American dream style. It's like you go to school, you graduate from school, you go to more school, you graduate from more school, go to more school, all for the preparation of getting a job, right? A professional job, a career, because that is what is going to be helpful in paying bills and in buying things and in having a full life. This is just kind of what was taught to me. I think we are all taught this very effectively so that even if you grow up in a Christian home, this, seeks, this seeps into how you view the world. Well, it had for me, certainly. And I had spent so much energy and focus and time on my professional life. And then as the birth drew nearer and nearer of our first daughter, I remember there was a moment I was laying in bed, and I was just like, I've made a huge mistake. I've spent so much time preparing to do those things, I have no idea what I'm doing as a dad. And this is all that matters now, right? Like, in my mind, there was a responsibility that was overwhelming, and I was unprepared for. Well, fast forward. There's more events like that that show me, actually, those kids aren't what are ultimately important either, right? And so I think we all have to kind of come to our senses this morning that what God sees as important, what James is going to hold out as most important, isn't what we think. And so the goal for this morning is to live 
for what matters. We want to live for what matters. And we're going to do this in a few different ways. He's going to kind of work through these themes, patience, integrity, and prayer, as kind of orienting us to how to live for what matters, how to structure your life in such a way that you're living for what ultimately matters, not something that's going to fade or disappoint you later. But he frames this whole um, section in the very beginning. So he frames patience and everything that comes afterwards with the coming of the Lord. So he's saying, be patient because the Lord is coming. And remember, he's writing to the early church who are going to be very close in proximity to Jesus, to his earthly ministry. And so for the church, this wasn't an abstraction. These people actually knew people who saw Jesus. James was Jesus' brother. And so James is reminding them, the Lord is coming back. And that's not an abstraction. He's coming back bodily. He's returning. And then later on in verse 8, he kind of underlines this. And he says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So not only is the Lord coming, but he's coming soon. Now, this doesn't mean soon chronologically. It's soon in the sequence of events that God is interjecting into human history to redeem the world. So Jesus' coming, his first coming, his incarnation, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, that was one event. The next event that's going to happen in that kind of scope of human history and God working in human history to redeem the world is the return of Christ. He's coming back. And so this serves the function of kind of putting us before God. It's putting our lives before God. It's what um, the old church would describe as quorum Deo, the Latin phrase that just means before God. And so James is framing this and he's saying, you want to live a life that matters? Put it before God. Live it before God. Because you are. God is not far off. But that's how we live. That's how we think. We functionally, a lot of times, I do this all the time, we live as deists, thinking that God just has set up everything and then kind of like let it go and is just kind of like standing back and watching, waiting. But no. He's saying, he is here. He is present. The judge is at the door. He's imminent. He's near. He's involved. And so live for what matters. And this, this realization that you're living in front of the Lord, before the Lord, that he is present in your life, it will produce these things. It will produce patience. It will produce integrity. It will produce prayer. And so let's walk through those and see how that work, works itself out. Patience. He encourages us to be patient as the farmer is patient. And if there's a society or a region or a culture that's more disconnected from a farmer, it's probably ours. We are the most disconnected from this. Because we live in a world of instant gratification. Like if there's a problem, we want it solved within the next hour and a half. And if we're talking to somebody and they can't solve it that quickly, we'll go to the next person and they can 
And so we get used to this rhythm of instant gratification, but that's not how God works. He doesn't do things to appease us instantly. Instead, he encourages us to be like the farmer who plants a seed. A farmer planting a seed is like taking all of your money and putting it in the ground and waiting. Like, that's their livelihood. Those seeds aren't just kind of like seeds as we think of them that you can get from the store. They are the future of that family. And so as soon as you bury that seed and put it in the ground, you are completely dependent on the seed growing for sustenance. And so how do farmers plant? Well, if I were a farmer, I would freak out. As soon as the seed was in the ground, I would be checking it every day, looking for it to start sprouting. But you'll go insane if you do that. Because it takes time, it takes rain, it takes the kindness of God to bring the rain. You're dependent. So be patient by being dependent on God and living in that tension of planting your seed in the ground. You're everything. You're trusting God for your future. And what we're going to see is like your life is a seed. Your life is a seed. And so you can live your life and plant it somewhere that will give you instant gratification. You can live your life for this world. And guess what? That thing will grow. You can live your life for wealth and you can accumulate belongings. You can live your life for family and have an enjoyable family. You can live your life for your career and climb the corporate ladder. You can live your life for the things of this world and it will grow. But then it will wither. And you'll realize when it's dying that you weren't living your life for what ultimately mattered. One of the ways that you know you're not being patient for James is when you're grumbling. And so I can identify with this. If I have put my seed into the ground and then it's not growing, I'm going to start blaming people. Probably the people who are closest to me. That's how it works, isn't it? Like my family, like it's your fault that it's not raining. See? You didn't till the soil the right way. You start grumbling. And so when something isn't going as you want it to go, when you're impatient, you will start grumbling against people in your life. And you might not ever vocalize that, but it will take root in your heart. And it will be an internal grumbling that takes place. When that happens, know this. You are not being patient for those rains. You're not waiting as we should. And so you're living your life in a different way. You're living your life for you. That's one of the things I've kind of been weaving through this series is that first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is our only hope in life and death? It's a question we all want to know, maybe the most important question. And the beginning of, that, of the answer to that question that the Heidelberg Catechism gives, you are not your own. So if you are living your life as if your life is your own, 
you are going to get frustrated. You're going to become impatient. You're going to waste your life on things that don't matter. And so part of this process is realizing this is not my life. This life is for the Lord. I belong to him, both body and soul. I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You're trusting. You're planting yourself in that soil, waiting for the rains. The prophets are another example that he gives us. So he says, In verse 10, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. They were an example of suffering and patience. And so the prophets, and he has probably like Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, all of these guys who had these brutal prophetic ministries because they're proclaiming a message that nobody wants to hear and ultimately they are all rejected and some of them martyred for what they said. And so in this example, we're seeing that their patience was actually evidence of their message. How they endured suffering and persecution was actually a witness to what they were saying. Because it showed they believed what they were saying. So patience is evidence. It's fruit of your faith. It's living your faith out. It's living for what matters. And then verse 11, he gives us Job, another example of someone who is patient, especially in the face of suffering. Suffering makes patience really difficult. I was suffering intensely with a minor head cold, (laughs) and I was growing impatient during that, you know? Like, oh, I started grumbling. I've been sick for months. It's everybody's fault. We have to get away from here. It shows you the restlessness of your heart. Again, it's showing you, you think your life is your own. You don't want to live at the mercy of God. You don't want to live in God's world. You want to live in your world. I want to live in my world. And so Job is a wonderful example because Job is given over to all different forms of attack. There's the world attacks him. The devil attacks him. His own body attacks him. Everything is rebelling. Everything is going wrong for Job. And notice, Job lives not perfectly. He doesn't suffer all those things perfectly. But he does it quorum Deo. He does it before God. What does he do? He goes to the Lord. He brings his complaints to God. And he endures a life of misery. And he does it before God. And this is where we see, James is encouraging us, he's showing us, in Job's life, you see the purpose of the Lord in that. The purpose of the Lord in his suffering, in Job's suffering, was to demonstrate his compassion and his mercy. And he does this through restoring Job at the end and showing his goodness by giving Job even more than what he had at the beginning. But that's not really the primary function of Job. 
It's not about earthly blessings. What Job is pushing us to, it's to seeing the redemptive value of a person who suffers faithfully. Remember, Job did not suffer perfectly, but he points to one who does. He's a type. He's kind of like a little foreshadowing of the life of Christ, of Jesus' suffering. Jesus suffers perfectly. And by suffering perfectly in his earthly life, he's demonstrating, he's making, he's bringing to life, he's animating the mercy and the compassion of God. And this is the purpose of God. It's the end of God. It's what ultimately matters, is to experience, to know the compassion and the mercy of God. In verse 12, there's a transition. These are rough transitions. Um, it's just like, it goes from one thing to the next, so forgive me. There wasn't a clean way to do that. Because now, all of a sudden, he drops in, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth. It's like, okay, I guess we're talking about this now, and we are. We're talking about integrity, but we're talking about integrity that is born out of humility. So this is another way that we live for what really matters. And there's integrity, which is obvious, because it says, just let your yes be yes and your no be no, right? So there's an integrity to that. But it's humility, because the proud person will make these grandiose um, statements of their word. They will kind of demonstrate how much they are going to fulfill their word by attaching it to something on earth. And so these are what we refer to as oaths. We don't really talk about them very much. But if you ever have jury duty, if you ever testify as a witness, if you ever get married, there's oaths and vows that we are familiar with. And they're just kind of bigger ways of making commitments formalized and known. And so here's what was happening in the early church and in kind of the culture that James is familiar with, is you have people who were less interested in their day-to-day -day faithfulness but then when they wanted something, they would attach themselves to swearing this oath. So they would kind of say like, oh yeah, 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 like this time you can really trust me because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to solemnize it with an oath. So like, may it you know, come to pass that I suffer a million deaths if I'm saying the wrong thing or am lying, if I don't fulfill what I say I'm going to do. And James is saying, don't do that. Don't imagine that you're fooling God. Like your yes being yes and your no being no is what really matters. So the point isn't to never do that because there are times like if you're in the military, you're going to get called to make oaths, right? And it's like, should we not do that? No, that's not what James is saying. He's saying, let your everyday life speak for itself. So that if people know you, they know that they can trust you. And this is how you're going to demonstrate that you are a disciple of Christ, who's always faithful to his word. So integrity is key. He goes so far as to say that it is above all the way to live as a disciple of Christ. We make discipleship so much more complicated than that, don't we? We read books and books and books, and James says, yeah, 
Let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's how you live as a disciple. So integrity. And then finally, we're going to move into prayer as a way of living for what matters most. So in verse 13, we get these different categories of prayer. And really the the underlying meaning of this is that prayer is for all seasons of life. No matter what you are going through, pray. Are you suffering? Let him pray. Are you cheerful? Let him sing songs of praise. Singing is a prayer. So pray. Praise God. And then is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. So here's what's happening in that last category. We're not talking about somebody who's like me who had a head cold, right? I don't need the elders of the church to come and pray for me. He's talking about somebody who is debilitatingly sick, so much so that they aren't even really able to pray for themselves. They are so weak and needy that they're now at the mercy of the church to intercede for them. And if any of you have ever been through great suffering, you'll be able to identify with this. Physical pain is completely focusing. It zeroes out everything else, and it brings all of your attention. Your brain can only think about pain. And so it actually completely removes the ability for you to pray. And so instead of James just saying, oh, that person who is really sick in that way, like, God has them. No, he calls on the church to say, see those people and pray for them. And here's why. All of these things, you're suffering. So suffer, think of suffering as a different category than sickness. So suffering is kind of like in Jesus's teaching on persecution. Like that's the kind of suffering that he's specifically saying there. So suffering because of being persecuted as the people of God. Cheerful. So when things are going well, you're cheerful, pray. And then when you're sick, have others come and pray. It's an invitation to bring God into all of those things. Prayer is how you live Coram Deo. It's aligning your experience with the reality that God is involved. You are going to the God of Scripture and communing with him, communicating with him. You're intentionally seeing that he is intimately involved and cares for your life. And this is what actually will help guide us in the the rest of this section as we talk about this prayer of faith. And this verse has been twisted in very wicked ways. Because a lot of people will say, if you pray the prayer of faith, then all healing, all physical illness will be fixed. You'll be healed. Okay. How many of us have prayed for something that didn't happen? For ourselves or for somebody else? Prayed earnestly. Well, if the connection is to that instant physical healing of that person, then the problem is with your faith. You didn't actually believe it. And so that can be crushing. That can be debilitating. And so what I want you to hear me say is that is not what this is saying. The prayer of faith is not faith in prayer. You're not believing in prayer. 
Prayer doesn't do anything. It's a means that the God of Scripture uses to do whatever he wants. And so you are not believing in prayer. You are believing in the God who created prayer. You're, being, you're believing in the God who invited you into prayer. And now, all of a sudden, you are going to start aligning your heart, your desires to his. You are going to him as the principle of life, as the life giver, as the only one who can heal everything. And you're praying with faith in that God. And the faith of God's people does not return empty. Those prayers actually work. And here's a couple of ways how they work. They consecrate illness. When you pray for someone who is sick, who might be dying, who is going to die, if you have ever prayed for someone who is dying and who's dead now, your prayers consecrated that person's suffering, their sickness, and made it holy to God. Set it apart for him. You helped that person live in their illness, in their sickness, in their death for what matters most. You cried out to them or on their behalf. You cried out to God and it consecrated him. And we symbolize this by anointing with oil. It's a setting apart. It's making holy the person that you're praying for. And so there are times where it is good for the church to actually use oil as a physical manifestation of this reality, that we are consecrating this person's suffering to God. And guess what? It's a seed that we're planting. God is going to use it. We don't always see or know how he's going to use it, but he is going to use it. And so it's an act of trust and dependence. It's not a manipulative tool. So yes, pray with faith, but don't think that that faith means that if you say the name of Jesus in the right tone or with the right inflection, that then it's going to work. God's not a jack-in-the-box. He's much more complex. He's doing much bigger things than we can imagine. And yes, sometimes he heals. And that is a sign of what he's ultimately doing, which is bringing resurrection life. And the example that we get is Elijah. Elijah was a man. He had a nature like ours. So Elijah was just a man. He was sinful. He wasn't perfect. He was a prophet, yes, but he was imperfect. And yet he understood so much what actually matters, which was for him his message of repentance to Israel. Turn from your foreign gods. Come back to the holy God of Israel that he started praying for the rain to stop because he saw that as an impediment to Israel's belief, their ability to repent because they were comfortable. And so Elijah's an interesting example to give right after just saying like, yes, the prayer of faith will heal because Elijah actually brings pain with his prayer but it's redemptive. Notice it doesn't stop there. It did stop raining. It stopped raining for three and a half years. 
And then the Lord brought rain, and the earth brought forth its goodness. It bore fruit. And so we see this happening in the church, elders, church members. And we see the physical illness as fertile soil for us. Because it is showing us, and it's an experience that when we go through it, it's saying something's not right. Something's broken in this world, and it's painful. And it's frustrating. And it's mortifying. And so, those opportunities, yes, they're opportunities. When you are suffering, it's an opportunity to remember that your soul is at odds with God. And so James, in this really interesting way, he puts together this physical healing, physical illness, with understanding your sin and being forgiven. These are kind of the visible means that God uses to communicate these spiritual truths to us. Just as you are sick and can be healed, your soul is sick and can be forgiven and restored. And this is ultimately the most beautiful expression of what matters in this life. Verses 19 and 20. Living a life like this produces fruit. And it produces fruit that looks like restoring a brother, restoring a church member, restoring a Christian back to the church after they've departed in sin. This doesn't happen by chance. It doesn't happen just kind of like, oh, I don't know, I just woke up and restored a sinner today. No, this is actually the outcome of seeking what the Lord values, living a life of patience, of integrity, of prayer, so that you actually know how to walk and restore that person. And what else, what matters in comparison to that? Like at the end of your life, knowing that you were part of God's work of grace in the life of another person, nothing will compare to that. God's grace in the life of your children, God's grace in the life even maybe of your parents, of seeing them come back and leave their sinfulness and come back to faith. So your life is a seed, but your life is a seed not as the first seed that was planted. The first seed that was planted was the life of Christ. We are planted in the same harvest, but we see what a life lived in Christ looks like by looking at his life. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 19 and 20. So this is talking about the resurrection, and it's talking about the value of the resurrection for living a life that matters. If the resurrection didn't happen, in other words, in verse 19, Paul saying, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, if he was only an example for this life, then we are above all people most to be pitied. Because the life that Christ calls us to is hard, right? We just finished, we're finishing the book of James. It's hard. There's a lot of sacrifice 
There's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of pain that's involved in it. It's hard. And so if you are hoping only in this life, if you are planting and looking for growth only in this life, then you are most of all to be pitied. But, in, fi- in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The resurrection points us to something that matters more than this life. And it's the next life. It's an eternal life. It's resurrection life. And he's risen from the dead, not just him, but he is the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. See, when you plant your life in Christ, you know that you will raise eternally, that the seed of your life will sprout and it will be eternal. And so this is James' way of saying, keep going. Devote your life to this. Live your life before God. Live it for what matters most. It will not return void. To close, I want to read a prayer that kind of picks up this theme. And this is written by George Herbert. Herbert, So please pray this with me. Oh, make your word a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip in conversation, that as the rain returns, not empty, so neither may your word but that it would accomplish that for which it is given. Father, we thank you that you bring the rain, that you do not waste our lives, and that you save us and you prevent us from wasting them, that you show us what is most important, that we can actually trust you in that. And so, Lord, as we, as we finish this series, I just ask that this would go deeper, that we would know that this isn't um, just an eight-week endeavor, but that you have actually given us your word, your church, to do this for a lifetime. And so, God, we thank you. We thank you that you are with us, that you are helping us to live life before your face, and that you're good and gracious to us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.